they throw the back door open and she goes, get in. And I'm running full speed and I dive into the back seat and the cab's like, and we're like taking off, chasing them. In our latest episode, we have Joel Carpenter, a former army ranger and government contractor who deployed multiple times overseas, talk about his military career and his life before and after service. We dive into his experiences with screenwriting for movies, working as security for the Amazing Race TV show, and his book dedicated to veterans transitioning. This is his story. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Joel, what's going on, man? Thanks for uh, joining us tonight. Hey, Bo. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys having me. Thank you, Dan. Of course. Of course. It's great to kind of have you obviously come on. And uh, I want to start off. I know that uh, when you and I met in Texas, uh, when we last talked and we were doing your interview for the book coming up, you mentioned that uh, you know you joined the Army because of your patriotic duty to serve uh, post 9-11. What were you doing before you joined the military? I was living in Hollywood and uh on six in la brea and pursuing an acting and screenwriting career i know exactly where you're at (laughs) yeah it was a great area i don't know what it's like now i was gonna say that was a pretty cool area did you uh grow up in california then uh no i grew up all over uh because i was a military brat so um I, i just kind of ended up spending six years in california after growing up really in texas what what got you originally interested in screenwriting and acting? As far back as I can remember, I was interested in acting and um, screenwriting kind of came along a little bit later. I wrote like my first play, which is based on some Three Stooges, you know, TV episodes that I'd seen. And, um, but I, I had asked, I think it was after Return of the Jedi, maybe, um, seeing that in the movie theaters, uh, I'd said, you know, I want to be, I want to do what that guy's doing. Mm -hmm. And, and my mom had said like, Oh, well, yeah, that's fake. It's not, you know, that's not real. Uh, and I said, no, I get that. I want to do like whatever he's doing. I didn't know what it was called, you know, like Mm -hmm. four years old or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, and she said, Oh, that's called acting. And I'm like, huh? Yeah. Like, I I think that's cool. So, um, and that just, stayed with me as much as it could for you know military brat and uh kids whose parents weren't you know dialed into a hollywood community or wanted to get them involved in in um you know acting or or auditioning and uh and so it kind of was like for me i was like maybe when i turn 18 then i would just go out and try to do it yeah was there any like style of kind of acting that you were more interested in or was it kind of like you know, you're obviously getting out there. So you're kind of willing to accept whatever comes your way. I definitely wanted to be more dramatic, like, you know, the classic kind of dramatic films, um, that I grew up watching. And then, uh, and then I just, when I went out to Hollywood, um, it's all based on what your headshot will get you. So a lot of times I wasn't auditioning for those types of roles Mm -hmm. and I would go in and read them. I would read it as, you know, it'd be like, like a teeny bopper type film or something. And I would read it like De Niro and Goodfellas. <laughs> and, yeah. and so like, it took me a while to figure out 
um, that what like I was bringing to the role and to the sides that I was reading, um, you know, where I was just like reading them the way that I wanted to read, which was I wanted to play more serious roles. And um, even though surfacely I understood like, okay, this is this type of movie. I just was like, oh, well, I'm going to bring this, this to it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I mean, I probably went on hundreds of, of auditions where that's what I was doing and it wasn't working out. That's gotta be hard too. Like I can imagine if you're going back to back, it's very similar, you know, from uh, my experience of working in the modeling industry and being a photographer where you have, you know, castings and all that to where people are kind of lining up out the door and you're going on like a weekly basis, sometimes two to three a day. And if you're not getting called up, does it ever kind of get to a point where you're just like, ah, you know what, like, fuck, this is really wearing on me. Or I guess it's really is a mental thing to where you just want to keep pushing through and see if someone picks you out. I think so. That's, that's really the experience. That's probably why they say just in general, um, or at least they used to say that stick with it, you know, give it a good like 10 years, because I think that everything's like a process of working through those things. So like finding what works, what doesn't work, getting, you know, the highs, the lows, and then growing to a point where you finally get it. And it's like, whoa, what happened? Like, you know, eight to 10 years just went by. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, it was six. I was on year six and it was, things were starting to change for me even by then. Yeah. Um, I think I was mm-hmm. starting to really kind of get my flow down. So did you go into Hollywood like completely cold or did you like take some acting classes, do drama in high school or things like that? Or was it just something you were like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. Moving to Hollywood, I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, I uh, in high school, I'd taken, you know, I think it was theater or, or um, some couple courses here and there. And then when I first got out there, um, well, when I went out there, I just I, I booked like an MTV video almost like within like three weeks of being out in California. Oh, wow. And that was that was like a really big, you know, MTV was massive back then. Mm-hmm. And um and so that was like a huge thing. Uh, and it, uh, everybody was like, wow, this is crazy. He's going to, you know, jump right into this. And, um, and so acting classes, uh, for me, you know, I knew that they were there. I knew people who were going to them. Um, but I also knew, you know, the, the history of the industry enough to know that like people like Marlon Brando, um, even though he'd gone to acting school, like kind of the way he felt was the, the, the best actors are the ones who can just be most relaxed in front of the camera. And that that's what really translates. That's what translates well. And, he, and, and at the end of the day, he just said like, he didn't really like acting. And so it's interesting because he was kind of totally checked out Yeah, and it just came across, you know, and film, it came across something that people wanted to see. That's really cool. So, and, and to go back, um, you know, I remember you saying that it was your, your patriotic duty to serve. Why is that? Man, you know, I, so I, like I said, I come from a military family. Um, my dad served, both my grandfather served. Um, one was Navy, one was, uh, was Air Force. Um, so for me, and going way back, I mean, even back to like, you know, founding of the country and all that kind of stuff. But um, there was just something inside of me that just, uh, it just felt that way. It felt like that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I grew up kind of really wanted to be in the military when I was younger. And as I got older, 
I thought, well, maybe I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? There's a couple of different things I want to do. And all of these are life choices. Like, yeah. And, um, and so there's opportunity costs and, and, uh, ultimately I chose to, to go, you know, with the, the pursuit of acting, which is a huge long shot. Um, but I wasn't necessarily ever against like the military or anything. It just didn't seem like it was the right fit for me at that point in my life. But obviously when something like for me around that time, something like September 11th happened, then for me, that was like a no brainer. Well, I, I won't say it's a no brainer. Um, because I did have, you know, I felt conflicted about like, because I, I had a great passion for the industry and just kind of creative arts and, and, um, and so it was like balancing my passion, what I felt compelled to pursue now that was tough. And so when you joined, um, I know you served with first Ranger battalion, was that your entire time enlisted? Yeah. Um, first Ranger battalion. Correct. Yeah. So I went in with the rip contract, um, gotcha. and, uh, spoke with all the recruiters, but I went army, got the rip contract, which is rasp now, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and made it and then reported to battalion and, uh, you know, seemed like, seemed like something that was going to be super, super hard. But at the same time, um, you know, I was super focused on, on attaining that goal. Uh, and somehow I got through it and was able to serve at first Ranger battalion. So I, I'm interested because, you know, you said you were conflicted whether or not you were going to pursue the, the acting career and everything. And then, you know, September 11th happened, you knew you, you know, you had this call to serve that you needed to join mm -hmm. the military. But for a lot of people who don't know, like, and I didn't even know this cause I had a Ranger contract. Did you know going in kind of what you were going to be doing and that, you know, going with an option 40 Ranger contract, uh, what you were getting yourself into? Uh, yes, absolutely. I actually asked them for that. Um, didn't even really, I mean, I, I understood what army Rangers were, um, you know, had heard some of the cadences, even when I was younger at like camps and stuff. Um, and saving private Ryan had come out, I think several years before, four or five years before or something, 98, I think. Um, so I did understand that it was like brutal. Um, it was like the army's version of a, of a Navy or of a, like Navy seal, mm -hmm. you know, it's their spec ops, one of their spec ops. Um, and after September 11th, I was just, I was super, super pissed. And, um, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I walked in and, you know, I was going to try to make it just this kind of quick thing where I'd like sweep in, whip some ass and then check back out and then get back into Hollywood. And I thought, you know, I mean, this is one thing I've always said is who could have ever known that a war would last for as long as it, it has, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I thought, okay, well this, you know, it's going to be like three, four years or something. And, um, so I came in, my initial conversation with them was I walked in and I'm like, um, I want, I want to be the guy that goes in to physically take down the guys, you know, enemy or whoever it is. I want to get, be the guy on the ground going to get that. Uh, and I want to be, I want to be an officer and I want like a two year contract. And, and they're <laughs> just started laughing at me. You know, so <laughs> how did that uh, transpire in the end? Well, I mean, they obviously explained to you at the time, believe yeah. it or not, there were, 
it's kind of crazy, but I, I don't know what it's like today, but there were two year contracts. I mean, ultimately like it's two year, not for Rangers. There yeah. were three year contracts for Rangers. Um, but there were two year active duty contracts, which would leave you with six years of inactive reserve. Um, so a total of eight year commitment, but they explained it to me. They're like, look, if you want to be the guy going in, you know, you're not going to be an officer. The officers are going to be, you know, more on the planning side. You want to be direct action. You're going to be, you're going to have to go in and listed. Um, you know, you, you have, you have a decent amount of college credits, but at that time I hadn't graduated college. So they're like, you're going to have to finish college before you can go OCS and all this kind of stuff. So they explained it all to me. And then, um, and then I had to make that decision, you know, okay, well, that's four years. And so I'm going from two to four in my mind. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, my initial delayed uh, entry, I signed up enlisted delayed entry. And that was in um, October that I enlisted. And um, what year was that? And then I, uh, 2001. Okay. Hmm. So yeah, I was, you know, jumped right into it and, um, and went from, you know, Hollywood, the polar opposites mm -hmm. of these two worlds and, and then, um, started trying to run and try to get into condition, started, uh, trying to memorize and started memorizing the Ranger Creed, um, all these things before I enlisted. And, um, yeah, I was running like at this track with like my dress shoes on. I had no idea. Like, you know, I just was just like, Oh, I'll just throw these shoes on and just go running. And I had like dress shoes on. I'm like running around the track with my dress shoes. And it was, oh, yeah, it's just like a different world, man. Yeah. That's, um, and I imagine too. So at, at this point, what are you 20, 23, 24 years old? I was 26. You were 26. Um, okay. Or I was 25, 25 turning 26. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, before I actually arrived at Benning, um, you know, I, I turned 26 in October basically. Gotcha. Yeah. It's a, I, I can only imagine, um, the difference, especially like knowing that you're joining during a war award that just happened, but then also it's pretty atypical for somebody in their mid twenties, maybe not then, I guess, maybe not in 2001, 2002, cause there was probably a, a good influx of people who were like, you know what, I need to serve because, you know, we're going to war. I have this calling that I need to serve. And so maybe it wasn't as uncommon, but like in 2006, when I joined, it was very rare. I think, you know, I don't know, less than 10% at least that were over 21, 22 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There was, I mean, when, when, I got there. I was considered an, you know, an old guy, like yeah. they, all the young guys, are like, Oh, you're old. And there was a group of old guys going with me. So there was like this span where these business professional people who are working already, they went and served. Um, and, uh, I mean, there was, there were guys that were older than me, even in basic training. And some of them had, one of them had a RAS contract or rip and he was, um, he was like 31. Oh, wow. and another guy was 34 and i remember thinking like i was 26 i'm like dude this guy is 34 i'm like dude this guy is old bro and that's, that's um, like if i went in right now you know now yeah. it's like i know like 34 is like a baby you know yeah that's crazy um so i think you know we we've talked a bit about rangers on this podcast but for 
you know, for people who may be listening for the first time, you know, Rangers have been deploying since October 2001 consistently. Uh, there's never been a break in some sort of Ranger footprint overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you've probably deployed numerous times. Um, and in those early years, especially of deploying, um, what has been some of the things that you've retained and, and skills, knowledge, um, I don't know, just life lessons that you gained from those deployments that you've carried with you, you know, post-deployment or post-military? Uh, I mean, general awareness. Um, so for me, it was a little bit probably, probably a little bit different because I grew up um, going to high school in El Paso, Texas, which is, you know, it's kind of rough town rough at the mm-hmm. time. And, mm-hmm. and we used to go to, we used to frequent Juarez, Mexico. Dude, and, that place um, is nuts. Right which now. is a li- even more rough than, uh, than El Paso. And, and so in terms of like street smarts and seeing how things went down and, you know, there's, there's bars and cantinas and you watch, you know, bar fights, all this stuff kind of breaks out. So my awareness level and the fact that I was older was already, I think at a different level, um, than somebody who maybe grew up in the Midwest and, 17 going on 18 or just turned 18. Uh, but everything was magnified. I mean, the training, the conditioning, um, these are all things you guys are familiar with also, but, um, overseas, I think it's interesting to watch the evolution of a soldier and his team and, Mm um, and to see like, who out of this group, this has always been super intriguing to me is to see through selections, deployments, all this kind of stuff to see who rises, you know, to the top, like who's the ultimate performer. So you get groups of guys that could be in the hundreds where, you know, it's like 325 guys, 350 guys. And it's like, Oh, they're all going for this, but then so many make it. And then it just keeps getting like whittled down to almost nothing. And then you have them go to their unit and then, you have performers within the unit and it, and then, and then you got guys who you go forward to combat on deployments. And then everybody knows like who like really, you know, was an ultimate performer, like who was just, I mean, just rocking it on, on deployments and who just, so it's always surprising, I think, to figure out who those elite performers are within elite, you know, quote unquote elite mm-hmm. units. And I think that it changes also, um, it can change. So people's mm-hmm. mindset, you know, they're growing, like there could be somebody with a young kind of mentality. They're just haven't fully matured yet. Yeah. Um, that might be super green or weak on, on one deployment. And then, you know, over time, like in some more additional training, they, they just grow. And, and, you know, I mean, today they could be, they could be at, you know, one of the, the most elite units. Um, so, I always was interested in that because you'd see the big, just jacked, you know, shredded guys that just looked super mean. Um, whether it was like, you know, maybe football players, uh, MMA guy, whatever it was. And then through, you know, the selection processes or, or like on mission, you know, if you're, if you're rolling up a mountain in Afghanistan or something, you see like guys like fall out and you see the people that you kind of expected to perform you see maybe some of those guys who fall out for whatever reason. Yeah. It's just so, it's so interesting to me because it's always, it just seems like maybe sometimes it's predictable, but I'm always shocked at 
some of the ones that, you know, are there with you in the end and people who didn't fall out or people that just performed at a high level. So um, those were things like that. Yeah. Those, those things stand out and they matter in combat. It matters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's funny that you, you brought that perspective because I know me as, you know, joining when I was 17 technically, but getting to second range range battalion when I was 18, um, I wouldn't have even, well, I don't know. I would have looked at that a little bit and I completely agree. You look at these big meaty dudes who just like are full of muscles and stuff and you're like, man, he's going to crush it. And then they fall out and you're like, whoa, am I really that much better than him? Mm. But then Bo, <laughs> Bo like uh, actually pointed this out. He met up with some guys who were um, uh, f- former Navy SEALs who were small. Remember, well, you're like, they're. I was like, you were like, I'm surprised how small they were. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say that, that I've, you know, met up with, you know, some guys that, you know, are, you know, I'd say average height for, for males, you know, they're not tall, but they're like five, eight, five, nine, and like maybe 150, 160 pounds. Um, but then you, you know, even if you look at guys that have gone over the fence of Delta, like they don't look like kind of like burly, muscular, bearded dudes. Like a lot of them like work like glasses and they kind of look like your typical everyday civilian but these guys are like mm-hmm. crazy people and i think that kind of goes into i want to get your perspective why do you think it is that you know i guess for the civilian industry why do you think people hear more about seals than they do you know rangers and delta and more of the other special operations uh that's a good question and um from what i can see is it's really the culture and the branding um, so, you, you know, branding sounds funny, mm-hmm. uh, because it's more of a private sector thing, but the truth is, is that, uh, I think for sustainment in terms of enlistment and, um, retention, I think that, you know, developing that brand and obviously brand awareness, all that kind of stuff, even though it sounds silly because it's, you know, it's war and all this kind of stuff, but really, and truly when, people are trying to get people to enlist in a, in a unit or these kind of things. Like you have to drive them. You have to pull them in somehow. And, um, and over the years, uh, you know, SEALs in the Navy um, has done just a really good job. I mean, how many people enlisted yeah. and became Top Gun pilots because of Top Gun and how many yep, people true. became Navy SEALs because of the movie Navy SEALs, no matter how cheesy people say it is. Um, you know, Black Hawk Down, that's a perfect example. How many people joined a regiment or joined with a RIP contract or RASP contract because mm-hmm. of Black Hawk Down? I already, I already had a RIP contract and I watched Black Hawk Down when it came out in the theaters. And I remember just, I was like, oh, like, man, you know, I mean, I was so happy actually that I just had a RIP contract already while I was watching. I'm like, but the one thing that I couldn't get past was I just was saying to myself, after I saw the movie, I'm like, why haven't I pursued this before? Why was I chasing Hollywood? Yeah. Why, why wasn't I doing this? Like, cause this was, this was like, you know, a whole just different level and like the sacrifice and, you know, you know the, like the, the camaraderie and the, the brothers in arms. And so I was, I was really impressed with it. So there has been moments I think where, you know, regiment has gotten out there. Um, people always a little bit know of, of, you know, Delta over the years, there were some Chuck Norris, you know, eighties movies. And, oh yeah. I and, remember those. Yeah. Like the, all that kind of stuff. But 
it's also, like I said, the culture of the army is, is from what I seen, this is my opinion is the army culture in general is a little bit more. Um, it's definitely more regimented. It's a little bit more rigid. Um, they're less willing to explore those things. Mm -hmm. Um, just because, you know, I mean, like it's the same thing with the award system in, in, uh, you know, in regiment, I know that a lot of times they're just awards won't be upgraded or looked at, or if someone submits something, then a lot of times the commanders, they just say, yeah, that's the standard. Like mm-hmm. yep. you're, you're meeting the standard. That's the standard. And so guys that maybe did incredible things, if you read some of the citations where some guys got medal of honors, like there's guys that I know in regiment that we're doing those things all the time or, or like the unit, you know, that were, that was like a daily thing, but just the army mentality is that's the standard. Like we don't expect anything less from you. So we're not going to give you an award for meeting the standard. And I think it's kind of the same uh, approach with the branding thing. With that said, I have noticed lately that it seems like there's um, there is a willingness a more of a, that they want to kind of explore this more because of the post you know, the post-military, post-active duty, like the veteran aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, you know, we're going to get to in a little bit later because I, I do want to come back and circle back to this a lot more about the, uh, you know, the the veteran influence and the um, veteran perspective or stereotype that's often portrayed in Hollywood and yeah. kind of how that, how that plays out to everybody else who sees it from an outsider. But as somebody who's on the inside looking in, like, uh, I, we're going to get into that and I want to see what your perspective is. So it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm curious, Joel, I know you did four years, um, in the army and, you know, I'm curious to hear if you have any stories from deployment that you want to share or any, you know, difficult missions, any fun missions, anything like that, that kind of, you know, really stuck to you, um, outside of doing your contracting. Uh, I think, you know, the first, the first deployment over to Iraq was absolutely, totally brutal. Like I'm talking about the, um, uh, quote unquote invasion or the liberation, whatever people want to categorize it as, mm-hmm. um, because there was no infrastructure. We were literally going in, you know, into this country with no logistics set up, nothing. It was just us going over. So everybody was, was just living on the side of, um, light skin Humvees and, uh, and, um, you know, for months. And so, and the interesting thing was, was like the packing list that they gave us was, it was like four pairs of socks four you know, four <laughs> pairs of, you know, t-shirts or, and, you know, three pairs of pants, like mm-hmm. you know, light, light sleeping bag. Like it was, it was, it was crazy because nobody had had, nobody pushed forward and said like, nah, you know, I've been, I've been there. Um, and I think we should do this or that, but we were also going in lights. Nobody wanted to be heavy. So, um, some of the guys that you had from like ACO that had fought in the battle of Takagar there, I had known because I basically had attached with them, uh, first platoon ACO. And, uh, and I noticed that their packing list, like, first of all, they had way more stuff yeah. mm-hmm. than, than I did from like my team leader and squad leader. And I'm like, what? what it said on the packing list, like no winter sleeping bag. And so like, I just brought my light sleeping bag and like, and three pairs of socks. And like, you're just wearing these things 
three, four days at a time. And then you just cycle it out with the other one that you just took off, you know, four days ago. Mm-hmm. And eventually the socks become like, they were just like leather, like Indian moccasins. They would like stand up on their own and get they like get all crusty. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was the, and then slimy to where you're like walking your boots, oh. your foot would slide. Like, <laughs> I guess from like the skin that was like coming off you. I have no idea, but like everybody stunk so bad because it was two and a half months without like showers, you know what I mean? Or whatever it was for, for uh, first bat on that first, that first time around until they figured out the rotations. That's crazy. And, so um, you're just throwing into like, the shit. Yeah. The dust storm. I mean, we had a dust storm where it was like five day dust storm, like where we're just mm. like, I, I'm not kidding. Sitting, you know, where we're rotating out like on guard and all that kind of stuff where you couldn't see the end of the 50 cal barrel wow. like, Jesus. and it was so it's like almost pointless and then and then when you even when you know you'd look and you'd pull you'd pick up like you know, the feed tray and you'd open it and it was filled to the top with powder powdery sand mm-hmm. and you're just like what is going and then you lay down and there'd be like sna- uh, uh sand drifts you know next to you like you know, like snow drifts mm-hmm. like in the winter like where the sand would build up on you yeah and um and then you have to like go in your bag, pull the zip, the sleeping bag over you, um, then pull your bivy, you know, all this, the bivy sack up on you. And you'd basically cook your MRE like on your chest. And then you had your, you know, your like headlamp and cook your MRE on your chest and you would like eat it in your sleeping bag because you couldn't eat in, uh, in the sandstorm because it would make it, you know, it would make it impossible. Make so, it flavorful. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, you get some extra seasoning in there. But um <laughs> I'm I'm chuckling at everything you're saying because uh my my one of my squad leaders when I was at uh 275, he actually came from first bat and he was also in the invasion. And a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. you were just talking about is exactly what he used to tell me all the time. <laughs> Who was it? It wasn't weeks, was it? No, uh Steve Galvez. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah it he, doesn't doesn't mean but that's all good. Um but yeah, he used to tell me all the time about what the invasion was like and how lucky we were and stuff. And I I feel terrible for anybody who had to be there because I, I know it was brutal. And I, I think it was only supposed to last a couple of days, right? And it ended up lasting several weeks, if not like a month and a half. Oh, or I don't like know. No, I mean, that was the start of that was the start of OIF. Yeah. So like, so I mean, um, I, I don't think that there was like, uh, it wasn't like, Hey, this is going to end in like a few days or something like the first one. I mean, it, it, we, we did take the country over super fast, mm-hmm. yeah. but, but, um, uh, you know, they said, they said, okay, well, we're, we're going to start then they started the G watt rotation for, for spec ops, you know what I mean? And so, um, there, you know, it started with OIF one. And so, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was brutal, but it was super, it was super interesting. You know, it was cool um in terms of expo- uh the kind of experience um so that was probably your most memorable the super deployment dirty. then well no 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 i mean like the, all of the deployments are different because yeah. what was really interesting was there were no there's no communications there was no internet um when, when i was in like they had a platoon camera and that's it like they wouldn't let anybody take photos of anything and so what ended up happening a lot of times is like the commanders would be taken, you know, kind of like the, the, um, 
you know, their, their own photos of themselves, but nobody else really got to take cool guy photos mm-hmm. because it wasn't allowed. And so there's a group of guys that deployed at least, you know, with regiment that they just didn't get a lot of photos. And, and, um, and, uh, and so from that deployment there coming back and then, and then the next time when we came in, like, I was just thinking, man, this is, this is going to suck again. And came in, in uh, 2004, completely, totally different. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the CBs, I mean, everybody basically had, uh, it had, all logistics were set up. I mean, you had chow halls, you had MWR, you know, the bases, all these kind of things. We actually had like hard structures that were, you know, people were sleeping in, showers. Like, I mean, it was, it was a completely different world. And so me arriving and seeing that, I'm like, what? what? I'm like, a chow hall they got internet this is insane like so you know that deployment we were it was just one platoon aco in iraq and we were doing super fun stuff like multiple missions multiple times a day um you know attached with with some other you know cool guy stuff and Mm -hmm. i mean it was a just a non-stop uh deployment just I mean, crazy, just, you know, and you'd work out and you'd go on multiple missions. And, uh, so in terms of experience and in terms of like training and all that stuff in that one deployment, um, I learned so much in the 2004 deployment, uh, that a lot of those things in that deployment stayed with me. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So after, um, you know, after you got done with the uh, Ranger Regiment after your initial en- enlistment, did you get straight into private contracting? Uh, no. So my initial plan was to come back. Um, I decided to come to Austin, Texas, which there was not very many veterans here at all at the time. Um, and uh, and I was thinking, okay, private sector. But I was also of the mindset where I might stay in Austin for a little bit and then get back out to to pursue, you know, the Hollywood stuff. And, um, but while I was here, I was focused on getting a job. And, um, while I was looking, I'm like, well, yeah, actually this was before I got out. I had already explored, um, you know, at the time it was Blackwater and triple canopy. And I'd already mm-hmm. spoken to both of them. I'd spoken to the border patrol and then I'd spoken to, uh, and to put my hat in on like Austin fire department and, um, so there was multiple things that I had going and I'm like, you know, I, I thought I'd prepped myself pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then I'd got here and, you know, with whatever money I had saved up within, you know, six months goes by super fast. Yeah. And, and, and I was six months kind of trying to find, you know, my next like job, like in the civilian sector. And, um, and it, I wasn't having much luck. And I was kind of interested to really get into real estate or, or, uh, mortgages and, um, and then through kind of a personal contact and just networking, I was able to get an interview with the company and then, uh, the, their, you know, branch manager, regional manager, whatever ended up hiring me. And that was, and I got out in like April and I got hired doing that, uh, in October. And so did that for a year and a half or whatever. And then I ended up getting into new home sales, um, like right when there was a huge crash and, mm, you know, cut yeah. my teeth during that. And it just, 
there weren't a lot of buyers. It was just mm-hmm. pretty, I'd say pretty challenging. And so the triple canopy things and the blackwater things were always there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had my family, um, I had a daughter at the time and, and uh, was my, was my wife now. So at the time we weren't married. Um, I didn't really want to leave, um, but I was willing to leave. And so the thing with, with the contracting is, is that it's usually never like, Oh, here's my application. You know, okay, great. You, you know, you pass the, uh, the background check, um, security clearance, all that kind of stuff. And we need you to go tomorrow. Like usually it's like, it's a pretty slow process. And then at the end, once you've like been cleared and everything's like, a, then they tell you like, okay, cool. We'll call you when, you know, as soon as we have a slot. Mm. And so both Blackwater and Triple Canopy, it was weird because um, they called at times where I'd kind of forgotten about them. And, uh, and I got enrolled in school. So I was working full-time and enrolled in school. And then there were a couple of times where they called me and said, Hey, uh, you know, we have a WIPS program. Um, are you ready? Can you, can you leave like next week? And so I had to make a decision, like, okay, wow. I just dump school, wow. walk away from the job I got and then go do contracting or, you know, what do I do? And, um, and I was finishing up, you know, I was trying to finish my degree and, uh, and so the, um, you know, I was getting good grades and all this kind of stuff. And I just said, I just said, Hey, you know what? I think for now, um, it's not a good fit for me. So I ended up passing on the opportunity early and then circled back to it later, like November, 2008. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like a, a lot of people, um, cause I, I, I don't think we've touched on it in here. Like a lot of people don't realize how much, um, civilian contractors had a role in pretty much all wars overseas, uh, especially modern wars. Um, so with your work at, at triple canopy, can you kind of explain a little bit about what you were doing? Yeah. So triple canopy, my experience with triple canopy was a really good one. Um, like I said, I had to offer letters from Blackwater and triple canopy. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that by the time, Initially, Triple Canopy had the WIPS contract, which is a Worldwide Protective Services contract, in uh, Iraq, in the Middle East. They have, got, they have a great backstory. Um, but then Blackwater ended up getting it. And so they staffed it until the incident in the uh, square. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then Triple Canopy ended up getting it back. And so in uh, the October, November timeframe, I started really looking at contracting again. Um, and I think the catalyst to that was, it's something I talk about in my book was a catalyst to that was, yeah, I was working at, I had moved from, uh, new home sales and I, I just said, you know what, this is, uh, not for me. And I, I had moved to, um, an operations management position at, at Polo Ralph Lauren. And this sounds crazy, but it goes back to Los Angeles and, and, and Hollywood and acting stuff when, a close friend of mine uh, from Texas, her father owned a store called Fred Siegel. He, he was Fred Siegel. That's who her oh, father really? was. Yeah. And so Fred Siegel was like a huge trendy, you know, store in LA mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And when I first moved out there, I'm like, I need a job in LA. And she said, well, you can work at Fred Siegel. You work at my dad's store. They need somebody. They're looking for somebody. You'll be perfect. And she goes, it's retail. And I'm like, I have, what is retail? Like, well, I don't <laughs> even know what that means. And so, um, so, working at Fred Siegel is like, 
you know, being Delta force in the retail oh, yeah. uh, world. And so, so, um, you know, retail management positions usually pay really good. So I was doing that. And uh, my work ethic is like, I'm always going to work to like the same level. And um, there was one day I was, I was, you know, working and, and it was a busy like Saturday and, and we have everybody, it's kind of funny. They all have head mics. And so you talk to the team and the store and stuff and we, everybody has head mics. So um, somebody came over the radio and they said something, you know, they're like, Hey, Hey, there's like no polos on this table. Um, you know, we're out and all this kind of stuff. And normally that wouldn't be something that I would do, but uh, I just jumped in and I'm like, well, I'm going to do it. And I'm like, Hey, I'm bringing out, I'm bringing out polos. You know, I'll be right out. And I kind of pushed the door open and I had literally a stack from like my waist up a foot over my head and both oh, arms. And I'm like carrying them out, you know, maneuvering through the crowd and all this kind of stuff. And I said, I, I and I'm talking military lingo. And I said, I've got polos, you know, I've got however many polos I'm headed to the table, you know, I'll be there in 30 mics or something. And, uh, <laughs> and like some guy who's in scrubs heard me. And he was with a, a couple of friends and he started uh, making fun of me. And he's like, Oh, oh, I'll be there in 30 mics. And he's like, Oh, oh I'm, a, I'm a spec ops cool guy, you know? <laughs> and he, he, he had no idea who I was or what my background was. Um, but I walked by and I'm like, I'm just trying to just number one, I'm trying to earn a living, provide for my family. And um, you know, you got, it's crazy. It's, you know, it's, it's like, it was like an hour drive there, hour drive back, you know, early shift. So I'm just trying to transition and, and, um, and I hear this and coming from, you know, like direct action, you know, Ranger world. It's like the first thing that comes to my head is like, I'm going to smash this guy's face against the wall, you know, oh, yeah. in, in, in the store. <laughs> and, um, and so I set the polos down and then I just went back to him and I said, Hey, Hey, I said, Hey man, how's it going? He's like, Oh yeah, it's, it's going great. And I said, Oh yeah, that was cool. What, what was it you were saying? Or like, what'd you say? And he's like, Oh no, I was just, I was just laughing. I was kind of joking around. And I said, yeah, but what'd you say? And he said, Oh, it just, it was just funny the way you, 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 uh, you were talking. It just, it made it sound like you were, you know, like you were in the military or like you were like spec ops or, or something. And he goes, I'm, I'm in the military. And I go, Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, man, you're going to have to forgive me. I said, um, I was, I was in first ranger battalion. And I said, you know, it was like, I got out like 18 months ago and I said, it's still here with me. And so kind of everything that I do, that's how I talk. I still talk that way. And then he's like, what? And he goes, you were in first ranger battalion. And I said, yeah. And he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm, I'm up at Fort hood. And I was like, okay, cool. And I watched like, the guy's demeanor the completely shrank and oh, changed. Yeah. Um, and, but the thing of it is, and he's like shaking my head. Oh man, man. Yeah. And it turned out the weird part was, is he went to West point with my commander um, at the time Whoa. when I got out my, my company commander. And so it was like a small world, even more small world. And you could just tell that he felt embarrassed. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, like, like for me, that was the point where I'm like, dude, uh, you know, this is brutal. I'm just trying to make it and I feel shamed right now. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, I was, I was like, you know what? I came home. I'm like, I don't care if I'm leaving uh, my family, I'm going back over. Mm -hmm. And that was, mm -hmm. that was, 
that was the first step for me to go back overseas. It's kind of interesting to, to hear that. And it's, it's also sad too, because I feel like that's a prime example. And I'm sure he felt that after he walked out of the store of just like, don't put your nose in other people's shit. Like, cause you never know who you're talking to. Uh, I mean, a hundred percent, but it's also, it, it made me, and I can reflect on it also. And it, because, um, it made me realize that even the smallest thing, like you said, is like what could be perceived as you're joking with your buddies or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't know on an individual basis, what anybody, what anybody's going through ever, like, yeah. you know, and, and, and then the sad, the other sad part of this was, is like, this served as a catalyst where, you know, I'm here today, but I could have gone over and got blown up or whatever. But the sad part is, is that it was an active duty guy who was saying it to a veteran who already was at a point where it's like this, the transition's already difficult. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's like, I don't need the extra stuff on top of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like there's so many things about that story that I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated with and I'm sure you've already kind of, I don't know, gotten past it, I guess. But, um, I think there's so many things from the community that, you know, people are so quick to jump and attack that who have no idea whether or not somebody has served, but it's not necessarily their fault in a sense that there's been so many people who are trying to emulate what it's like to be in the military and want to mm -hmm. learn the lingo and want to be exactly that, that it's easy to think that, Oh, you're just, you know, talking to, for lack of a better, you know, stereotype, but like an airsoft guy or something, you know, yeah. you're talking to somebody who's just trying to play military on the weekend, but you know, they're not actually serving in any aspect. So like, I can understand a little bit where they're coming from, but then I'm also frustrated with that's even a mindset that that's okay. Where it's like automatically you're thinking that person wasn't a veteran and mm -hmm. automatically thinking that, you know, I can kind of talk shit to them and I would probably reacted the same way as you did as I would have been hot headed at first, but mm -hmm. I'm pretty level headed when I finally like go and talk to somebody. Um, and I probably would have had a very similar conversation to you. So it sounds like it was, it was good in the end, but, um, it's just so frustrating that that's the mentality, you know, that somebody would have, um, when somebody hears, you know, that kind of, that kind of language. Yeah, it was, it was frustrating. Um, I think it's it's one of those things where like after action review you can look at like the positive and the negatives like you know challenge action result and uh like as as a case study that's the way we set it up and um so you know it's a learning experience but that was really what pushed me into contracting because i was already there i was already almost there yeah joel i'm, I'm kind of curious before we move on um you know for anybody listening that doesn't kind of know the the typical, you know, kind of duties of a contractor, you're basically a civilian, but you're hired to go pull security, just like military, but you're working for a private company. And that obviously deploys you, you know, backed overseas. How many additional deployments did you do as a contractor? I, with triple canopy, um, it's anywhere within probably like 10, you know, 10 more deployments okay. um, over there. The deployments are different and obviously you're in a support role. Um, and a lot of things, but in a lot of ways, 
because you're in a support role and because you're working for a company and because you're not with, you know, the army, like number one, you're not treated the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, uh, there's a lot of resentment from some of the active duty because in their minds, they're thinking, well, you're doing the same job as me, but you get paid how you know, three times, mm-hmm. four times more than I do. The other thing is, is at the time, uh, very early on, the, um, the GS levels for those positions were, uh, G they were categorized as, and it would say on the, on the, um, the LOI, uh, or your arming authority in ta- in the country, it would say, um, GS 13 to 14 equivalent. Mm. And so depending on your job duty, the GS 13, GS 14 equivalent is, can be a Lieutenant, you know, Colonel, mm-hmm. uh, like, so initially in those days, there was a lot of conflict with the contractors because, and, and the reason they do that, at least back then was because, um, they didn't want, you know, the active duty guys come in and pull in rank because you had security guys that basically needed some level of rank in order to, you know, do the right thing. Hopefully they were doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, but if somebody wanted to come, you know, on base or whatever it was, if they just were just going to pull rank and say, well, I'm a, I'm a Colonel or I'm a captain or I'm this, I'm that. And then that was the end of it. That's what they were trying to avoid. And so mm-hmm. now on the flip side of that, you had contractors, you know, whether it was Ranger seals who, or, or maybe it's regular army or just, you know, uh, law enforcement, whatever it was, you had people who were like, well, I'm a GS 13 or I'm a GS 14, you know, you can't tell me what to do, or they'd really would go into flexing because it was like an ego thing. And so in a lot of ways it caused, you know, there's a lot of problems caused by that, um, gave the, gave the industry, you know, kind of, it's a really pain, broad, very dark image of, of contracting on top of everything else that was going on. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I can imagine that it, there's a huge, um, kind of a difference in mood and behavior pattern, you know, going from, you know, traditional army and then going to contracting. I can imagine that a lot of guys, like you said, man, there's an ego thing that gets involved with it. Well, you're, you're like in the military, you're, you're raised or you're bred in a certain way that you respect the rank. Right. Mm -hmm. And you like, that's all you more or less respect. So even when you had civilian, and this is just my perspective, I don't know, people probably have different perspectives, but even when you had, um, you know, civilian attachments and things to your unit, I feel like there was this always this weird thing where it's like your civilian attachment. I understand you have some sort of experience that qualifies you for this, but you didn't go through everything I went through. So you don't have a rank and therefore I don't think you're as good as me. And so you kind of go through this, like, I don't know, almost where you, you kind of want to test it where it's like, this guy, you know, even though I'm a, maybe I was a specialist or a sergeant or something at the time before I, you know, was wise enough to understand the difference. But, um, I would be like, this guy doesn't know anything. He doesn't, he's not as good as me. He like, he doesn't carry the same amount of authority as, you know, somebody else who's a senior leader. Mm-hmm. And so I would just disregard them, but like, who cares? So I could imagine even more so as somebody who's doing, you know, security or logistics or something like that. As a civilian overseas, you got even less respect. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, but, but it goes both ways too. So like you'd have the contractors feeling that way about, you know, the people in the military. So, but with that said, many, many times, and probably the majority of times, the military and the contractors got along just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting world. I used to have before I actually even decided to go that way. I had these recurring dreams where, um, because I knew I was thinking about it. So I'd have a recurring dream where I had, uh, had, um, accepted the offer and had gone to flown into Baghdad, gone to, uh, get picked up a biop and, um, and I had these like nightmares where I showed up and they're like, here, get in, go ahead, get in the truck. But it was like not armored. There was only like a few people picking me up and I'm like, where's my weapon? You know, do I have a helmet? Do I have equipment? And they're like, here, you know, here, put this on. It was like all this horrible equipment and like, they wouldn't give me a weapon. And this was just like some random dream that I would have mm. it was recurring. And then the interesting thing was, was like when when I, you know, finally did go over, um, and did fly in and got picked up, uh, I got picked up and they're like, here, put this on. It was like the most garbage equipment, like body armor I'd ever seen, like with a crappy helmet with like no weapon. And I was just like, this is my freaking nightmare. Like <laughs> that's crazy. literally coming true. I was like, this is insane. And I was, you know, they put, they were putting it into like this big armored truck. It was, it was like a, uh, they called like a chicken coop. It was like, it was, you know, they just had all these new guys like pile in there. And I was able to have like a side conversation with one of the other guys who was doing PSD. And they knew some of the guys that I knew from regiment. And they're like, oh, oh, you're in, you were in regiment. And I said, yeah. And they're like, here, you come with us. And they put me in a, uh, you know, a sub like SUV armored SUV, which was better. Um, and they gave me like not as bad body armor. And then they gave me a, an M249 that had no optics on it. Oh man. Um, but, but it was like night and day from, you know, what I was about to just like jump into. And I was, I mean, it was like, it was my nightmare, like coming true. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but luckily, you know, from biop to the green zone, it wasn't, that long of a trip and you know we made it once you were kind of like in there then obviously things were much better yeah Um, but it it, kind of funny so to kind of you know fast forward from your contracting but still doing you know some sort of security um i know you did you said that you did security consulting for the amazing race can you explain a little bit more on that yeah so i mean different different private sector companies or productions uh, always a lot of times in the insurance um there'll be a requirement for some sort of security risk management uh travel risk something and um and so there was an opportunity that presented itself mm-hmm. um i was one of the team members of a small team and there was an aic and um and i worked with with him and and other members of the team and and basically it was just a completely chaotic uh uh, in a good way, um, you know, product, I mean, anybody who understands like the amazing race, um, just take whatever you see and then, you know, multiply it times 10 oh, and then imagine. for, for the, for the, for the, um, you know, for the risk guys, a lot of times 
you have to, because there's a certain amount of teams and there's not as many guys to cover down. So a lot of times you'll be like, you might run the same iteration that like it's one team ran on TV that you see, mm -hmm. like the risk guy might've ran that with five, you know, three or five other teams, like the same thing. Wow. That's um, crazy. And so it could go from, you know, something where it's just real crazy like that, you know, to where it's just maybe more normal, but, um, you're flying all over the world, uh, you know, working with the production crew, the, the, um, the teams, you know, uh, participants in the show. Um, it's nonstop. I mean, it's, it is as close to what you see in film mm -hmm. as I mean, it's, it's, there's no jokes with it. It was just, you know, it was just go. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I like the, as soon as it kicked off for me on the first season that I worked, um, I was just like in shock. I mean, from like the camera guys to the audio guys, I couldn't believe what was going on. You know, I mean, it was just like, you know, people talk about uh, herding cats. Like this was, this is like trying to like herd like, you know, Wolverines or like, it was just insane. I mean, it was crazy. Like the most probably if you wanted to really just differentiate it from other projects, like in terms of like the work, mm -hmm. And in terms of like everything that was going on, like in regards to maybe comp on other projects, you would say like, well, that's not, I mean, that's, that's all you're, you know, you're making that like, it should be double that or something. But the truth is, is that, you know, you balance it with other friends, like, like, uh, you know, the destinations, the places you're going, even though it's on fast forward. So, um, but it's hard work, it's hard work. And there's, there's times that stick out in my mind where I was like, for the people, the participants and all these execs, like they're getting like a glimpse of what it was like, like at regiment, you know, maybe mm -hmm. in like, like a few hours, like you could say like, Hey, this intensity is similar to, to, you know, like spec ops, but just like have it continue on. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, I can imagine it was an incredible opportunity just to travel the world too. And, you know, what initially got you into that? Was it because it was tied to the Hollywood industry? No, this, this is just kind of weird. So I didn't pursue it at all. Um, so working, working overseas, doing the contracting overseas for, you know, however many years. Mm -hmm. And then, um, at the time when I first came back, this is like 2010 ish. Um, this was rare back then. Uh, I started a company with some guys and there was only a few people, a few veterans that actually had really kind of jumped into starting companies. Um, and my, I, I said, you know, I wanted to do something more niche in terms of the risk management stuff for, um, you know, high net worth clients or celebrities and stuff like that. And so that was new because the major contractors were doing work overseas in the middle East and stuff. So they didn't even care about this other type of business there are companies that have been around that have done it forever. Um, but, uh, I really just, I think after doing this for several years in terms of like pushing back and trying to do the, the, um, stateside protection stuff, mm -hmm. um, eventually once you're in, you know, in this network of, of professionals, eventually, um, people hear your name, and, you know, a resume gets floated or somebody refers you, um, cause they had a good experience. And that's really kind of how this one came about, um, was through my network and people that knew me, um, that's pretty cool. but it wasn't something that I pursued. So it was kind of, it was weird. Uh, when I first got it, I didn't even, 
my wife followed the amazing race, I had to actually go and research it on, on YouTube <laughs> to figure out what I was getting ready to do. That's awesome. That's a pretty cool opportunity though. Yeah. I'm a, me and my wife are, are watchers of the amazing race off and on. And, uh, I could just imagine, you know, what's funny is I've always thought about that is like, you know, you're going into these, not always, but pretty often per season, they're going into third world countries and stuff like that. And they have, you know, conflicts going on and, and oh, yeah. riots and all kinds of stuff. And I'm just like, man, how are they getting around all of that? And, uh, yeah. so I could just imagine being the security detail and trying to figure out, you know, how, how can you, how can you get somebody safely from point A to point B? And if they get lost, how do they not go down the wrong neighborhood and all that kind of stuff? I'm sure it was like, mm -hmm. like you said, hurting cats, but like, um, even it, it, more it's, chaotic. It's, so I'll just give you two quick stories. So, uh, Malta, um, you know, teams kind of crazy everywhere. They're doing all this stuff. So the main thing is, is obviously breaking contact. Like you don't mm -hmm. want to ever lose a team. Um, and, uh, from, an outsider's perspective and this is where it gets fun for like guys from from you know the soft world and stuff is is uh is like you know teams are running and then they're jumping in cabs and they're going down here and then they get on the other side and then they're going down these stairs and now they got to go back here and go and so you know you're following them and you're trying to just stay close but stay out of view of the cameras and all this kind of stuff and and um and there was a team in particular, it's like all cobblestone uh, roads and stuff. And there was a team that really fit um, girls and they're running, you know, and they track down, uh, they're on foot. And I'm like, okay, good. They're on foot. Well, they end up tracking down and they're able to get a cab, but it's random at night. And I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Like, of course, you know, and I have my team and I have like a PA and stuff and I'm telling them um, while I'm running, I'm chasing these people. I, I you know, I would give them instruction. I'd say, call me like on the dot. I want you to call me every five minutes or I would tear, you know, that could go to two minutes or, or 10 minutes, whatever it was in need. I'd say, you call me on my phone every five minutes or whatever. And so, um, cause you don't have the time to pick up your phone and start dialing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so they jump in a cab and I'm running, I mean, sprinting to try to catch up to them just to see like where they go and what road and all that kind of stuff. And, they they get in the cab and they're slowly starting to come off and I'm like oh here comes the break in contact and I'm like this is it and then my phone rings and I'm sprinting and they're like they're like uh, you know Joel Joel where you at and I said I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm like out of breath here yeah I'm running here in the, the cab <laughs> and, and, and they're like okay we're coming we're this and that and I'm like all right right and then right when they take off and I'm like oh man this is it this is where the break in contact happens. I see my PA and the driver come burning around the corner and I can hear and then like, and then she sees me running and she is in the back and they throw the back door open and she goes, get in. And I'm running full speed and I dive into the back seat and the cab's like, and we're like taking off chasing them. And, and so like, you know, and you get in, you're like chugging a water because, you know, you're going to get out and like run again. And like, then you might link up with another team. And uh, I mean, same thing, like in India, uh, we're in, we're in Tuk Tuk's chasing, uh, you know, teams and, and you got a Tuk Tuk's like this little go-kart kind of golf oh, cart yeah. thing, yeah. taxi cab and like, and, uh, and I'm with, uh, I'm with like a producer and an audio and, uh, and, um, and we're behind them, but then the tuk tuk breaks down, and there's crazy traffic, and the team's taking off. We're gonna have another break in contact. So I'm like, I'm like, look here, here's 
you know, I got this, get me on tracking, you know, on the tracking. I said, I'm going on foot in this. And I mean, it's like just completely chaotic, crazy traffic everywhere. There's like cows in the road, you know, oh, man. chickens, like electrical wires mm. and I'm on foot, man. And like, you know, running, just trying not to lose them, but I'm like tracking them in the traffic and running around and jumping over like tuk-tuks and cars and stuff literally looks like to somebody else, they would say like, what, like, is, is this like, you know, the newborn identity? Being That's filmed? exactly like, what I was yeah. envisioning. <laughs> and, and like, people would think like, you know, without knowing what's going on they're they're probably saying, okay, like, it's like this American guy, you know, with like a hat on and, and you know, some some glasses and he's like running and chase it like and they're all looking at me like what is this dude doing i'm like in my mind i'm like i just can't like you just can't lose these guys because you can't come back and say you know or that where's the team at And you're like i don't know you know what i mean especially if something happens to him and so eventually you know i do catch up and the other audio guy like you know sees me like running behind him and uh and so you know i'm able to like catch up and then jump in and so it's it's fun man it's exciting i think anybody like from our world would would love to do you know a couple seasons on it so i would highly recommend anybody who um can get into that you know with certain shows there's also obviously some reality shows where you're you're going to be static like they're filming on a beach or something like that would be you're still getting paid but that would probably be pretty boring you'd just be sitting around the whole time like you'd be caring but you'd just be sitting there staring at people doing their thing yeah, yeah. i mean but if just, you're you know doing it's it, all good it's if you're gonna pull security and... though might as well do it on a beach yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yep that's awesome that sounds like a good time yeah no kidding um so i i guess this might have been uh during your transition after you initially left the service and i think maybe once you were getting back into contracting um but I know like one of your your credits on IMDb, and maybe this is wrong, but uh, is that you you did work or you were um, portrayed somehow in the Tillman story. And I've seen the documentary um, and I was wondering what, kind of what was your role with that? Um, well, not much. I mean, I was briefly featured in it. Um, and and uh, there's a there's a few like photo like montage sequences with and there's one where Pat and I are are uh, are in, you know, particular photo and stuff. So. Mm-hmm not much direct um uh affiliation to that i have talked with um some other groups i think there's another documentary coming up um soon i think of pat actually uh but um yeah i mean if you if you want to know about pat um is that kind of like the direction you're headed yeah yeah because i was gonna ask um we talked about it in a previous episode too. we did but we only briefly touched on it because we actually talked with uh um jc glick he i think he was a oh yeah jc glick yeah yeah yeah. i think he was a captain or maybe he was a major at the time but he he dealt with a lot of kind of the back end within regiment Mm -hmm. um during you know the initial incident and how they were trying to handle it and everything like that and so i i kind of just wanted to get your perspective especially with somebody who may have had a completely different perspective um Mm -hmm. you know what that that whole situation was like for you I, yeah, yeah, exactly. If you want to talk about what it's like for me, um, I, I've talked about it in other podcasts. Um, I actually was in Iraq that deployment. So uh, second bat got surged. Usually, obviously we wouldn't normally do that, but they got surged. Um, and there were some that were in Iraq and some that went to Afghanistan. Pat was obviously part of a group that went to Afghanistan. And, um, 
and so we were serving at the same time and well we were forward at the same time um just not in the same country so uh for me i remember like obviously exactly where i was the mission that i was on that night um and uh and them like pulling us together and telling us what had happened but they just initially had said that he'd been killed you know in combat or that one of the, it, it came across oh, one of the tillman brothers died tonight in, in a combat mission and i had gone through pre-ranger and ranger school with them mm, and that's oh. how i knew them so pre-ranger three weeks uh, i don't know what it is now um and then ranger school you know two months basically mm. uh, a little over two months or whatever and um and so developed like a really kind of i think during that time frame a close relationship with them um still keep up with kevin like just really really cool guys man you know um just uh that was like a tragedy all around um it you know when it finally kind of like was coming to light of like what what actually happened it was like even more of a you know punch in the gut and mm -hmm. um and uh man you know i mean it's it's brutal it's like um yeah because uh some of the conversations that i had like in regards of like where like what his plans were like after regiment and, and, uh, and in particular, like in pre-ranger, like our class, for some reason we were just, I don't know. It, 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 I mean, it didn't just solely have to do with Pat. He was, he was probably had something to do with it, but, um, the class that we were in the pre-ranger class that we were in was just like super motivated to the point where the cadre had just said that like, Hey, we'd never seen, a class like this before. So they really were praising us. And, um, at Cole range towards the end of the, towards the end of the thing, they, they brought out like TVs and pizza, which was so weird. Cause hmm. within, you know, yeah. a year before that, um, a year before that, like most of us were, were, you know, getting brutally hazed at Cole range. And so it was like this really weird thing that happened. And we were watching like NFL football, um, at Cole range. I remember Pat and Kevin, everyone, all of us were like watching it. I remember him, you know, like watching the game. And, um, and I, I, I said to him, I said, I, I'm like, Pat, I'm like, yo, I'm like, dude, this is, I said, how messed up is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was just, I said, this is so messed up, dude. You know what I mean? Like, like Cole range, there's this brutal connection that we have. It was like a twilight zone. Um, you know, these days, maybe not, but like back then it was weird because this place that we had all suffered so much, um, it, you know, and it was just like this horrible memory for us. It was like, now, you know, we're eating pizza and like watching an NFL football game. Like yeah. it was just crazy. It was mind blowing for me at the time. That is crazy. So I know like, especially pre-ranger and ranger school, that's honestly where I've, I've formed probably some of my biggest bonds, like, uh, Bo knows Jordan, one of my good friends, like that's where we became acquainted and became mm -hmm. honestly, like he's one of my best friends. And, uh, so I can imagine, you know, going through, um, pre-ranger and ranger school and just, you know, being around those people because a lot of people don't, it's hard to put yourself in the position unless you've been there. Right. But to kind of try and put people there when you're in ranger school, you're literally and pre-ranger you're literally spending, you know, up to 20 hours awake a day with somebody oh, yeah. where you're yeah. talking consistently or you're patrolling and you're picking up those little nuances. Like 
how they walk, how they talk, like their body posture, like every possible thing you can learn about somebody you can get in pre-ranger and ranger school. So it's, it's a completely different, like, I don't know, level of, of connection that you, you bond with somebody, um, when you're Mm -hmm. going through that. And then you're also sucking together. You hate it. You're not getting food. You're not getting sleep, but then you like figure out how to kind of just laugh it off and figure out how to grind through the suck together. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine, you know, Pat Tillman was a, was obviously a, a huge figure. Um, somebody who joined the military and, um, so I can imagine kind of what it actually, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it was like, you know, first hearing the news and then, you know, all the aftermath and all the news and media that came along with it. And just knowing it's like, this is all surrounding around one of my friends. Like this is insane. Mm -hmm. And I think also part of the, part of the interesting part was, was like, where before, you know, you could talk and you could just say, Hey, like what happened? Or, you know, I was in Iraq and, um, and everything just kind of like went like real dark for me in regards to, I think like I, before every mission, you know, I'd put on, uh, and this is funny cause Bo just asked me, uh, the other day, but like, you know, pre-mission, like doing you know all my checks and everything and getting everything ready like mm-hmm. i would just blast a couple different songs but one of them that was mm-hmm. probably the most frequent was like um the song uh undercover of the night um by the rolling stones and like it's a great it song. was just all about like getting you know jacked up and mm-hmm. and like you know energy and then going to the gym and working out and you listen to music at the gym and like you're just pumped up and you want to get through the deployment and then get back and then you know in savannah and then go out you know and um and then after that happened it was like like it all the uh, any fun or anything the the excitement like it was all gone um i didn't listen to music or watch movies or anything for like the next like three weeks um and all i did was was just pour everything into the missions and like you know, the, the men, like the guys in my team, my squad was just, it was just like training and missions and getting better and, you know, training with the other guys that we were deployed with, like, and like, you know, being the best that I could be on the mission. So I basically poured all of myself into my work, I guess, to get through it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so, which was positive for, for, it was positive for me is positive, positive for everybody else. But it was like, ultra switched on ultra aware, um, you know, high level of alertness, uh, but you know, um, just keen to everything that was surrounding me. Uh, and so the, you guys asked earlier, like kind of like the most memorable, you know, the 2004 deployment, there were so many things that happened and the, and the, uh, op tempo was such at a crazy pace that, um, that deployment really just 2005 is similar. Um, but 2004 really stands out in my mind. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine too, like you were saying, um, you know, when something like that happens, I'm sure everybody, like once they get the debrief and understand kind of the the full scale and scope, kind of what happened, they take a step back and it's like, all right, how the hell can we make this never happen again? We need to train harder. We need to do more. We need to figure this out so that this doesn't happen again. And so, 
as tragic of a situation as it was, I know that there was a lot of good in the development and the training and the retraining and the rewriting of, you know, operations and procedures of how things would happen moving forward to where, you know, it would never happen again. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, it, I think it has to be that way because nobody ever would want something like that to happen again. The crazy part about it was there was guy, there were other guys that were with me that, um, you know, went through pre-ranger and ranger school that knew that were friendly with, um, Pat and Kevin also. And then, uh, and then we, uh, in the summer of like the time frame where, um, operation red wings, we were in PLDC and actually this was crazy. I mean, this was a crazy experience. Um, we actually found out and then it was, he was there. One of the guys who apparently had shot Pat was in our class. Mm. Oh, wow. And, and that was, I mean, when we found out and like, uh, that was, you know, this is before it was confirmed later on the guy had actually come out and said, but I guess at the time, you know, it was just kind of like, not too many people knew, but he was there with us. And so that was, that was another thing that was just extremely challenging. I can't, yeah. I can't imagine like what that guy was going through in his head right yeah. after that moment. Like just knowing that like, well, just everything in that, in that, in that, in that moment. But I mean, at the same time, he didn't really like, there was a lot of things that were fucked up and you know, you could watch yeah, yeah. the the documentary. Yeah. You can go back and watch, mm -hmm. you know, there was a whole, army debrief and i know they conflict each other but you can go you know do your own research but mm -hmm. i just feel bad for him because that's a burden he's gonna have to carry for the rest of his life that's what i mean and like mm -hmm. and especially after that happens you know you see all the circulation that's happening in the media everything that's happening you know within regiment and then having to carry that even just through your initial enlistment like mm -hmm. i don't know i i feel like that that has to be so incredibly difficult for that person. And yeah, you know, I, I, I wish them all the best. I don't, you know, who knows where they are now, but, um, I couldn't even imagine, you know, what that was like to, to deal with that and to live with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. But, um, well, I want to kind of circle back. Um, so you did, uh, you, you've kind of stayed tied into the film industry a little here and there, you know, outside of your enlistment and then also um, a little here and there throughout your contracting. But, um, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of screenwriting now. You're getting a lot more involved into the film industry. And what do you think has brought you back into that and uh, and gotten you more excited, I guess, reinvigorated to, to write, um, you know, the screenplay and stuff for all these films? Mm -hmm. So I'm very, I'm very much involved with that today. It's, I would say it's more of a side hustle because it doesn't necessarily pay, uh, you know, all my bills or anything. Um, mm -hmm. but it's my passion. Uh, it, it always, as I mentioned earlier, it, it always has been so creatively, uh, from the creative side of it. Um, I love to write. Uh, I like to, uh, I'm really, really, uh, inspired by, anything that uh, just anything that's kind of based on a true story maybe not anything it's definitely has to be a particular story mm -hmm. um but i'm super inspired by true stories and um i like i like fiction uh, as well but 
uh, the nonfiction stuff really. Um, and so I'm, I've been, when I was working at triple canopy, um, there was a guy that I had gone to high school with and grew up with, you know, civilian never served or anything, but he had all, he was, he had a rock band. Um, and he was always pursuing, always chasing, chasing that. And I disconnected from the creative and was just, you know, making money, doing the contracting and all that kind of stuff. And I came across, somehow I came across him and something he had done and it was, it was on a social, you know, network or something, but he had one of his songs that was on some, you know, studio uh, TV show that was, and it was on the track or something like that. And I was just like, wow, that's super cool. And, um, and I just was like, dude, that's, you know, congratulations. That's, I think that's, that's something to be proud of. And, and that like spurned uh, like a reawakening for me into the creative world that I'd taken really, I'd taken a break from that sense. Um, since my, you know, uh, stepping away from that world, mm -hmm. um, f and, and listing. Now I had started writing the screenplay, uh, while I was in Ranger regiment for, uh, you know, based on the battle of Takagar. Um, uh, but I did only written like seven pages and then that was it. Didn't touch it after that. I just thought it was just such an amazing story. It was um, pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so, um, after 2010, um, you know, there was a story, it was, a uh, based on a true story. Um, I just got into, uh, not just the screenwriting world. I got into, uh, the independent producer world and just like the analogy I could give would be, um, the same thing as kind of like real properties, like a real estate agent or uh, an investor, you know, land investor, like, except for in the intangible world. Um, I started looking at intellectual properties and um, looking at how to gain, you know, exclusive option to those to mm -hmm. basically develop them into uh, film projects, TV series, whatever it ends up being. And uh, and so since probably 2011, I jumped back in and have been um, have been steadily involved in uh, the creative and kind of feature film uh, television industry again since then um, that's cool and uh and that's what i you know do also today so um right now i'm working on a uh on getting uh the right you know life rights set up for another project um hopefully that will come through soon and uh and so just working on all these different things but um you know those things that some people some people like the garden other people like going out and shooting and stuff like for me the the creative world um, and film and all that kind of stuff. Even, even if nothing comes from it, like I still have fun, um, you know, creating these worlds. Yeah. So, so you, you talked about it earlier. Um, you're kind of, you initially started drafting a screenplay for, um, uh, for the battle of Tukagar, um, mm -hmm. and Robert's Ridge is, is that the, cause I, I actually looked this up. Um, is that the movie? I think it's uh, Tall Mountain that you did the screenplay for. Correct. Yeah. So um, there's really, there's really there's a working title. Initially, it was called the working title was The Ridge. I mm -hmm. had that for years, and then I kind of changed the title, and it's almost like got dual titles now. And then whoever ultimately ends up you know, doing it, and I guess they can decide. But um, uh, you know, Talker Gar means tall mountain. Yeah. And so, um, those, 
that that really was central kind of like in the in the naming of it but then also you have the ridge and um either way correct yeah i i just i became like the mark you know bowden of of uh you know black hook down but but for the battle of takagar and mm-hmm. so a lay historian um from firsthand accounts like majority of the guys that actually um, fought on Takagar. I knew personally served with, they were in ACO 175. I was in ACO 175. Um, so I knew those guys knew their stories, uh, good friends go out in Savannah with them. A lot of them, um, you know, got to know Nate later on, uh, Nate and I've worked for several years. Nate's a now. great guy too. Um, I'm happy that, uh, you introduced me to him. Cause when I met up with him, like literally last week in Texas, yeah. He was telling me a little bit more in detail. You know, I, I kind of did a uh, a pre-workout, you know, and looked him up and was studying, you know, everything about his story and his book that uh, was published mm-hmm. and all that. But he was telling me kind of more in depth. And it's just, yeah, it's it's kind of incredible the the things that he saw and went through. There's For sure. It, go go ahead. ahead. You go ahead. Well, I was just going to say um, absolutely what you just said, but something that's really my focus is, is, um, is, is telling the ranger side because I've watched this evolve in the first, the first time I was done with the first draft of this screenplay was in 2014. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so before Lone Survivor came out, by the way, now Lone Survivor was already in production, but it was before it came out in the theaters. Yep. And, um, and I was racing. I mean, I knew that there was market saturation that was coming and I knew that eventually, uh, people were going to get tired of watching the war movies. But at the time, everybody was searching for a war movie and I was, I mean, grinding it out, man. Every day I was, you know, trying to get emails to the top directors and producers saying, you know, I have. I have this amazing story, you know, the rights, this amazing story. And the, you know, this is so incredible. And, um, and a couple of, you know, good solid leads here and there, but just never really, like I was trying to connect with Michael Bay and I talked to, um, to, uh, Chris, um, what's his, uh, the Ranger from 13 hours. Uh, anyways, um, I, I spoke to him, uh, uh, uh tonto tonto exactly yeah, yeah. chris peronto peronto i'd that's spoken it, yeah. to him be- before i'd saw his story on um like brett bear like fox news and that was amazing i'm like wow this is incredible also and, and this is before like they had a movie deal or anything they had the book that just came out and um and i was talking to him and i was thinking well maybe you know that would be another great project um but i was trying to go to michael bay before i even reached out to him and I was trying to connect with them saying, Hey, this is a great story. This is a great story. And then, uh, I talked to Chris, um, at some point and I'd said, uh, Hey man, you know, what's going on? He said, Oh, you know, we're in LA or, or wherever they were LA or Vegas or something. I forget where. And they said, Oh, we're at, we're at dinner with Michael Bay talking oh, about, um, you know, uh, he wants to do a movie he wants to do the uh, movie on the book. And I was just like, Oh, like, you know, I was thinking, you know, and so basically it happened, you know, it reached the, the market reached saturation. And so this, the, um, nobody kind of, everybody was like, well, we have a project. We have a project. That was the responses that I would get. And then, um, 
you know, the concern for me is, is that as we've seen, um, awards got uh, upgraded. Um, there's different perspectives and if people really look into it, um, there's different perspectives of what happened on Tucker Gar. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so what I've seen, and this is concerning to me is that the, um, the Ranger story has, has been put on a back burner, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not, yeah, exactly. There, if you look at the citations and you look at the awards, the way that the awards are written, um, and this is, this has nothing to do with, you know, uh, the culture rivalries or anything like that. Um, but the way that a lot of the citations are written, it's the Rangers are kind of written out of history. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing about how Nate or, um, you know, the Rangers from alpha company came in and secured the mountain and never left the mountain. There's nothing about that. Um, uh, or if there is, it might be like a little just footnote, you know, like one sentence here and there. And, and so something that I watched evolve was people who, you know, watched the, uh, Dateline documentary about Tucker Gar back in 2007, who thought, wow, this is amazing. This amazing story. The Rangers, that was an amazing story. Then I see, you know, different things at different comments now where people will just say, you know, what, what are these guys talking about? What are the Rangers talking about? Like John Chapman's the one that saved them and all this kind of stuff, which, which whether it was John Chapman, uh, you know, or, or the Rangers that died on the mountain or Rob, you know, uh, Neil Roberts or like, you know, the pararescue, uh, Jason Cunningham, like whoever it was, like everybody, you know, there was bloodshed on the mountain from all units. Yeah. And, um, and uh, it was an interesting time because all the units converged on that mountain and actually worked together to get off of the mountain. And, um, and so uh, it's just a real interesting thing of, of watching, like I said, like in the pursuit of trying to get the story made, watching this slowly kind of like, like you said, like kind of fizzle into, into the background. That would be such a great like movie though. Like if that came to fruition, like, is that something that you're still, you know, thinking about? Oh pushing? yeah, we're still, we're still, we still, you know, look, the truth is, is we had a, we had it so close with the studio. I mean, it really came down to like kind of one meeting and, um, and the writer that, uh, we were looking at just really, I think he felt overwhelmed mm-hmm. because there were the varying perspectives, um, you know, of like what happened and, and, you know, who was where and all this kind of stuff. Like, there's it's there's different uh there's different people have different views of how yeah exactly what happened and so um it is what it is and and i think everybody who was there on that mountain that day like they're to me they're my heroes like i'm just like man some of these guys some of the stories you look at some of these stories and and i mean read the story about like eric stebner and like nate at 25 years old ground force commander calling in you know, F-15, uh, you know, strafing runs and bombing, you know, 500 pound bombs, like 50 meters from their position, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? On a mountain and just getting hammered the whole time, like at 25, you know what I mean? Like yeah. the, these, these, this is amazing. And like, nobody really, there, there's not a whole lot of, uh, of awards that are written, you know, that have, have that much, um, just 
absolute craziness going on in terms of combat. I've been on hundreds of combat missions and, and n- none of the combat missions I ever w- was on were they ever that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I feel like it's, it's due, right? It's going to happen. I don't know when, and I'm hoping, you know, the, this movie or this potential movie, uh, Talt Mountain can, can make it happen. But like you said, I mean, even in Lone Survivor, like Rangers got written out of the script. they were nowhere to be found in that, which is so frustrating. And, uh, cause I I was telling Bo about it, you know, the guys that I served with and, and, uh, Seco, um, third platoon Seco two, seven, five, like the guys, a lot of the guys I served with were the ones who rescued Marcus Luttrell. And they even did like a a little documentary and everything about it on history. Yeah. War fighters or whatever. Yeah. But on, uh, when it came to the movie, that whole portion got completely stripped out. And sure. I, I'm just like, it could be, it could be a story in itself. I mean, exactly. on its own, but, Absolutely. Yeah. but yeah. And so it's like, you know, ever since black Hawk down, I don't think that there's been another ranger movie and it will happen. I, I have full faith. It's going to happen eventually. Um, cause I, I feel like we have so many stories again, we're, I think probably the only regiment, the only unit, the only infantry, you know, light infantry unit who's been continuous, continuously deployed since 2001. And it's like Mm -hmm. something out of that needs to come up where, you know, there needs to be some sort of recognition. And unfortunately it's just the way that it happens in the civilian eyes. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like you only gain recognition from what's what what's in front of them. And a lot of what's produced over the last 20 years has been, you know, Navy SEALs, Navy SEALs, Navy SEALs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and like, like one. look, and here's the thing though, but I mean, there's a market for it. Like, yeah. so yeah. you can never, you can never, um, people can like, I, I mean, I can get frustrated as a, ra- a former ranger and say, um, what is that? You know, I, I understand where it's coming from. Um, but at the same time, like they just do a better job at, at sharing their story. And, and, and for some reason, Hollywood's always been fascinated with that group. And so, I accept that. Um, I'm just, I'm just amazed. So for like, for Nate and all the other guys, like most of those guys got silver stars, but mm-hmm. you know, there was recent where, where the command and everybody under Mark Esper, I think, um, or, or someone basically said, we're going to go back and we're going to relook at all the awards that were given. And, um, and so at some point they went back and everybody looked at talker gar and and some of the other p- people that were there got upgraded and none of the army guys got upgraded yeah um from their silver stars none of them and the reason again was be- is because they the the response was you know what the response was it, it with that with that unbelievable battle the response was they met the standard mm-hmm. yeah that's the ranger standard and it's like, I get it. And and these guys don't, they don't do it for awards, but like when you look at that level of, of sacrifice and like what, what they did, you know, and there was different people who had different, um, skin in the game at different points of time on that mountain. So like the seals had their skirmish on the mountain. And then, you know, then there was John Chapman and he had his skirmish on the mountain. He had his, a very important role. And, and then, and then he, you know, he passed and then the Rangers came in and the Rangers kept the mountain and fought the mountain and, you know, killed the Al Qaeda and 
uh, or the presence that was on the mountain and all the other ones that were moving in on the mountain, all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, they never left the mountain. They never gave up the ground and people were dying. And it was just like really drab kind of scenario. Um, but for me, I just look at it and I'm just going like, how, how in the world, you know, could, could people give this like an honest look and not say that like, you know, maybe Nate, uh, you know, Eric Stebner, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, Omar Vela, like some of these guys, like, do they need, should they have been upgraded, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. to like a, a medal of honor? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I, in my mind, I'm like, you know, I don't give out awards, but in my mind, I'm like, this seems like a no brainer. Well, that's just my opinion. And to me, it's like, honestly, when I first heard of, heard of this, cause you know, it was, it was before my time. And then when I first read the book, Robert's Ridge, I like, I was like, dude, this is like the script of we were soldiers. Like <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. it, it was just so unbelievable that this just happened. You know, when I finally read yeah. it, cause I think I read it um, right after the book was released in 2010 mm-hmm. or 11 or something like that. Um, but I remember reading it and being like, this is incredibly unbelievable. I can't believe that this is not like a movie right away. So yeah, it's just, yeah. Well, to give you perspective, when I came in and I was an airborne, the seals that were with us in airborne, like, you know, it's on like the last day we're getting picked up from the rip, rip cadre and like the seals are getting ready to take off and go back to whatever. And, and they're like, you know, coming in and they were like walking through our formation, like, you know, kind of like, kind of like uh, strutting through and, and the guys are like, so they're like, so this is what, uh, this is what Rangers look like. Huh? They're like, yeah. And they're like, yeah. Um, you Rangers, you, you guys are pretty good guys. You know, you, you died for, you know, one of our guys the other day. And, and, um, so that's like, that was like, you know, July, uh, 2002. And, um, and so just a few months before, I mean, obviously was, Talker Gar, I'm showing up at regiment in September and, um, and they're on their second deployment to Afghanistan. So I get there when I first get to regiment, it's on, I'm on rear D and on ACO, ACO first platoons hallway, all the guys who died, um, all on all of their doors, there's like a knife stabbed in the door with like notes on it like you know of like all and like their name tapes are still on the doors and um and when i got there i'm like at that time for some reason time moved so much slower than it does today Mm -hmm. but like it felt like to me because of everything i'd been through since april that happened in march before before i had shown up at benning i'm like well that's that was forever ago you know and the reality was just a few months ago and so i'd gotten there right when that had happened you know yeah and it was brutal man it's brutal being on rear d and then having them come back from a deployment you know what i mean and then like (laughs) it's like here's the new meat you know what i mean yeah so and to kind of you know this follows up with what you're saying before but as you get more involved in hollywood and helping create movies you know many with a military theme what do you think is the largest area of uh you know emphasis that should be focused on you know as we're now kind of starting to see an increase in these films in the past 20 years man so there's i think there's two different stories that can be told or maybe you know multiple stories that can be told but the ones that are most told you got the 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 war movies Mm -hmm. that are told 
are usually always in all the good war stories that are perceivably good to an audience yeah. are usually about the worst missions mm-hmm. because if, if it's a great mission, then you come back and everybody takes showers and then they go play Xbox and watch like, you know, a uh, uh, series like TV series. And they're just like, Oh yeah, that was great. So nothing ever happened because it went perfectly. Yeah, yeah. The stories that always get told are the ones where the mission went totally wrong. So like the perception of the cool war story is, Oh yeah. Oh man. I was, that, tell me some great war story. Tell me this, tell me that the, the ones that are people are most drawn to is always what, what we would consider while we're in the military, the most like, like dude, it was messed up. Like when you're doing that, when you're doing the after actions review, everybody would just be like, Oh, this, this was, you know, this was improved. This was an improved. This was, there were no sustains. You know what I mean? Like, um, so it's interesting, but you can't, I guess, when the mission goes perfectly, a lot of times, then maybe that story's boring. So there's always going to be interest in the war story. The other yeah. side that I'm always seeing, and it's less so today, but I saw for a while it was there, was was the um, was the the PTSD veteran, you know, the suffering veteran, like the guy who just can't make it, and the guy who, like he's a drunk or everything's like everything's messed up in his life. You know, he's ready to kill himself. And obviously the, there's many of these stories yeah. mm-hmm. um, and, and people are killing themselves. That's one of the number one reasons that me and uh, my co-writer wrote that book. Um, so obviously these stories exist, but uh, I think that there's different, you know, there's a different story that can be told about, um, about the veteran, you know, the veteran, like once they come back, mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, for me, I got, it became, I hate using the word cliche because I don't want to make it sound like a loss is cliche. Cause anytime anybody's dies, that's not cliche. It's part of life and it's horrible. Um, but I, I just saw people, I think attempting to capitalize off of that mm-hmm. uh, yeah, true. story a lot, you know what I mean? And, uh, and to me, um, it's like, I think there's so many other stories that it might be harder to tell it, but I think people might actually be interested in some other stories also. Well, they're so quick to capitalize on tragedy, right? It's like, mm-hmm. the, what is it? The the original um, screenplay, the original like stories are, it's a, it's a drama like or it's tragedy, a tra- yeah. tragedy. Yeah. It's like you have one or the other. And so people are just so clean to this, I don't know, sad story where they, you know, want to feel a wave of emotions or whatever. And I feel like you can still get that with a happy ending. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's frustrating. And that's where I go back to We Were Soldiers. And, and that was such a good movie. Like so many people died, but there was a lot of happiness threaded throughout that. Like, I, I can't remember her name, but the, uh, you know, one of the army wives who picked up all the letters of all the um, people who were getting killed overseas and like hand delivering them that turned into a thing for the military. Like prior to that situation, there was never any uniformed officer or member of the military that hand delivered, you know, the worst letter you ever want to receive is the death letter. Mm-hmm. Um, but that didn't exist until that event. And so there is some happiness to that as far as like tragic event but something really good came from this and um and i feel like that can be 
reintroduced to a lot of Hollywood movies to where like there could be a tragic event that people cling to, but there can be a positive outcome and a good outcome. And there's a lot of positivity that comes from the, the veteran community, how successful people can be, how, you know, the businesses that they create, the movies that they write, the, uh, you know, the, the different veteran organizations that they stand up, like all those things can be positive outcomes that I feel like those stories should be told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Joel, do you think Hollywood does a good enough job of telling military stories? I think so. I mean, um, good enough to where I grew up watching some of them and yeah. I was super inspired. I don't know what their ultimate goal. I mean, is, you know, some of them lean more towards like, at least for the the military, I know like Top Gun was a huge recruiting tool. Like, yeah. so the military was just very much into that. Like, oh yeah, this puts, this creates a, you know, uh, awesome kind of perspective of what we're about. And so, um, yeah, it just depends, I think on the director, the writer, all that kind of stuff, because there's, there's some, um, there's some productions that just are, are not authentic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's like mm-hmm. rank placement, berets, all that kind of stuff. And then there's the complete opposite where they've really seemed to got it right. They have a good military advisor, um, and, uh, and they care enough to, to, um, you know, say like, Hey, are we doing it right? Uh, yeah. so if they're, if they're open to that, um, you know, the, the, the flip side to that is, is a lot of times, like if you, if you get sanctioned or if the production gets sanctioned by, you know, like DOD or something, a lot of times they may want to have, you know, too more influence than maybe the production wants them to have. So mm-hmm. I think the bet, like when productions feel most comfortable, a lot of times, um, is where they do hire like an independent uh, military advisor yeah. to, to work with them. And that military advisor also like, like what's their background, you know what I mean? And um, because there, there are people out there that claim to, you know, know all these things and maybe at one time they did. And the truth is, is that if you're not, you know, in it, then, and you used to be 20 years ago, like things have changed. And so you might not have the you know, most fresh perspective of, to bring the level of realism that some of the soldiers might want because you know if you watch black hawk down even to this day like that movie was done very very well like mm-hmm. ridley scott did yeah awesome on that movie but he worked with regiment on it so it was yeah. like it was real interesting so like the realism and the other thing was is that the story was told there was it was very episodic in terms of like the characters um no there was no besides Matt Eversman, I think, was the most central character that people could relate with. But in terms of like character development, it wasn't really about that. It was a it was a battle. So yep. like the arc of the story was just like you know before the battle, the battle, and then after the battle, mm-hmm. and um, and then just how all the different people were you know weaved into this story. And um, I mean, the first time I watched it, I didn't even. I couldn't, it took me a couple of different times of watching it to know like who, who were the Rangers, who was Delta Force, like, um, so, uh, but in terms of, in terms of realism, in terms of realism, in terms of how like missions go down and all that kind of stuff, like, I mean, it was really high level. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought it, I thought they did a really good job at that. Yeah. And this goes into my next question perfectly. And, uh, 
Like I, I do feel like though, like you were saying, there are some people that are out of touch with maybe the situation that happened on the ground. And so when, you know, when the initial casting comes out, when the initial screenplay is written, when the initial script is fully written, like those military advisors maybe miss out on a few details and, or maybe they Hollywood decides to embellish a story a little bit because it's just going to make for a better film. Do you think that's, do you think that's appropriate to embellish or change things a little bit to make it more attractive and more exciting for people to watch? Um, so here's my perspective. I think if it, if, if it's based on a true story, um, and if the writers and the producers work hard enough because it takes discipline and it takes a lot of creative juice to draw out the real story and to find out what really is compelling about it and what makes it exciting, um, then you don't have to, you know, use what they say is like maybe cinematic license. Now, all movies will have an element of cinematic license um, the, or, I, you know, embellishment might be a strong word, but I do know there were other movies where like, like um, the, uh, the Boston bombing movie mm-hmm. in the, in the end, like they had like the guys basically, it was like a, like a movement to contact. And it was like, they were like throwing these massive, like pipe bomb grenades. Um, and that were like blowing up, like, you know blocks yeah. and like houses yeah. and, and cars like it wasn't that big like well it wasn't any of that it was not not only no. was exactly not only it was it not that. that big like it didn't happen <laughs> yep. like now now there was like other things that did happen but that that didn't happen and so for me when i was watching it and understanding and 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 i was tracking it while it happened and then i read about it afterwards and everything i immediately was like what is this like yeah because for me watching a movie like that and watching a movie maybe like a Richard Jewell, like I'm watching it for the realism. Like I'm mm-hmm. I, I know that it's inspired by a true story or based by a true story, which there is a slight difference. Um, but if I'm watching it and I know that it really happened, like then I'm definitely gonna be questioning, going like, why did they do that? Like that doesn't, yeah. you know, especially if it's kind of like super crazy, um, then it almost seems like agenda driven. So yeah. um I'm not into it when that happens. If I'm watching something that's based on a true story, uh, then I'd like it to be as real as possible. I understand that sometimes they have to merge. Like if something happens, you know, just for the movie, because they only have a certain timeline to tell it. Yeah. I understand that they have to maybe like merge two separate experiences or incidents into one or maybe several. And they make it into just one scene or something because otherwise you would, you would literally have to have a band of brothers, like, you know, 10, 10, uh, episode series or whatever it was yep. to tell it, you don't have two hours or, or whatever. And so it does become challenging and there are certain hooks and stuff that, that, um, studios and all these other people are looking for, um, the discipline, uh, and the challenging part would be as the producer or the writer who brings it is, is, um, trying to be respectful and I know Pete Berg dealt with that also, like mm-hmm. um, with Lone Survivors, like yep. is like being respectful to, especially when there's loss. By the way, um, yeah, being respectful to the real story and then the families and all that kind of stuff, um, you know. And uh, and then and then the other side of it is like, no matter how anybody wants to you know, look at it, 
film Hollywood and, and movie making is a business and it's, it's, that's why they call show business. And so nobody really understands and looks at it this way, but a movie, if it has a $50 million budget, the reality is, is that's it. That's if you had a business, you know, a, a new it business that just got 50 million in funding, like that, that gets bragged about all day and they could go for years mm-hmm. on a burn rate with that um, $50 million budget is funding $50 million worth in whatever local economies. And so mm. anybody who can get a movie made, um, it's quite significant because you're injecting $50 million worth of capital into local economies. You, you're paying the crew, you're paying, you know, you're paying uh, a wardrobe, you're paying, you know, local um, location shoots and restaurants and all this kind of, and then you're paying for the craft services and the food and like all these different things, all this is getting pushed into, you know, like I said, like whatever economy, wherever it's filmed, it's getting pushed into that economy, that local economy. So yeah, um, that's quite a that's quite a bit of money. And so there's all these different things you have to balance and complexities um, that the producers have to think about that, like the actors and and a lot of the other people involved that you know this isn't on their plate to worry about. So, well, I'm glad to hear your perspective on that because. You know, my perspective, and I have a feeling this comes to a lot of people who serve in the military too, is like when somebody gets something wrong in a film, especially a military affiliated film, it's it almost hurts, right? You're like, oh god, like why did they get that wrong? But then when there's a film that's supposed to be, you know, factually accurate because it's nonfiction, it's something that actually happened. You are waiting, right, for it to be like, I know what's about to happen. So I know that this is going to happen. And then the script is different from that Mm storyline. So you're like, come on, why did they do that? And the only reason why I like I'm especially right now kind of feeling this is because I know there's a movie coming out and I don't want to talk about it, but there's a movie coming out that I'm afraid that they're not going to get factually accurate. And I know I know why they're writing it and I know why they're trying to sell it and everything. And it's it's awesome. It's a great story. It needs to be told. But I just have a feeling that honestly, Rangers are going to get washed out again. And it's like it's just going to be this cyclical thing that keeps happening where it's as long as there's freedom. You know, there's freedom to develop a story however you want and change it to make it, I guess, cinematically effective or to make it more drawing to the audience then I, I kind of get it. And the story does need to be told. So, and, and as far as like getting a story and like you said, funding economies and stuff like that, like it, it, it definitely needs to be out there, I guess, just for me and my perspective and, and you saying what you said kind of gives me a little bit more ease of understanding the bigger picture within Hollywood and, mm-hmm. and the, the trickle down effects that it has on, again, the economy, the, the, the actors, the support crew, the, uh, you know, the people running the cameras, all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's the only reason why I was, I was wondering kind of what your perspective was. Yeah. I think there's a responsibility. I, if you're going to make, if you're going to produce a story that's based on a true story, a film that's based on a true story, then I think that, um, out of respect for everybody involved that you should do your, hundred percent best to try to honor that story. So I guess Um, that's my personal opinion. And maybe, you know, I mean, I'm not, let's just get this straight. Also, 
I'm not some big studio producer. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm an indie producer that's that's got projects that I'm trying to get made. So I'm grinding it out still. So maybe I'm doing it wrong. I don't know. Um, but I feel like I'm on the cusp. And But that's the way that I'd like to do business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's the way that business should be done is as honest as possible. But I also know, you know, business is business. And some people rather see the dollar signs and see the truth on the other side. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it, it's just an unfortunate thing that happens, you know, in Hollywood. And again, I get it. It sells. It's what people want. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's ultimately what, you know, directors, producers, screenwriters, um, they all, you know, ultimately get to get funded. Um, but yeah, it, it's really good to hear your side of it. Well, you know, I mean, look, everything moves in cycles also. So like what's popular today, the market can change. And tomorrow, um, you know, it might be all about army rangers. Like give me every army ranger project you can think of and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, um, so it can change, but in the meantime, we have, you know, we have the black Hawk downs, we have drill, you know, drill bit Taylor, um, where he was, uh, an army ranger, you know, homeless guy. Hey, we have, um, we have Con Air. Don't forget about Con Air. Exactly. Like, you know, so, <laughs> uh, and actually, if you think about it, uh, Olympus has fallen. Um, yeah. he was an army ranger. So, uh, there's some, you know, there's some good representation there. It's just, uh, I think the A -team. in some ways, you know. Yeah, the A team. The A team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that had a little bit of Delta too. Yeah, they uh, they were. I think Rangers and Delta. Yeah, Joel, you yeah. kind of. Uh, I was really interested when you know you and I met for coffee in Texas, and um, you know we met for your interview in the book. But you obviously touched on it earlier that you co-wrote a book titled "Set Up for Success." Why did you decide to write you know the book, and and how well has it been received? Um, the book was something, um, that I got into writing, uh, probably in like 2014 ish. And I just started putting ideas down, writing in chapters, just little by little. And, uh, and it was based on experiences. I was seeing a lot of guys. So it, when I got out and all the stuff that I mentioned in this, in this interview, um, there was a lot of things where I'm like, you know, uh, a lot, you know, guys, if I shared a lot of these things with people, then it could help and, and keep a lot of guys maybe from, from suffering, you know, kind of yeah. an altruistic kind of approach and, uh, and no different than, you know, in pre-ranger, um, I actually recycled my first phase of pre-ranger second phase. I knew everything that was going on. I was even the team, the, uh, or wait, what a class leader of the mm -hmm. first one that I recycled just so strange. Um, but I recycled. And so the guys who came in on the second one, which was like a lot of my friends, and then I ended up meeting Pat and Kevin, and it was all good. Um, but they were sourcing me. And it was like, well, what do we do? You know, what about this? What about that? And so the guy who knew and the guy who had been there and, and would share his experiences, um, it helped, it helped other guys. It helped square away other guys. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, the un, the unsaid, banging of the rubber duck on the, on the, uh, land nav post, you know, like in the middle of the night. And, um, and so, you know, people can hear it and they run to it when they're just, you know, maybe a few feet from the location or whatever, but, um, it's really kind of the same, it's the same approach with that. And I, I, I forgot about, it. I wrote some of it, I forgot about it, left it. And then I came back to it later accidentally 
And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And I kind of opened it up and then just re- I was flipped through the first couple pages. And then I'm like, before I knew it, I just read the whole thing. It was like 40 pages. And I read it. And it was super quick read. And so there was a guy that um, when I was on a contract, we were doing some nonprofit stuff uh, like anti-human trafficking um, in uh, Kurdistan, you know, kind of countering like the ISIS stuff. And, uh, and, um, and I had worked with a Navy SEAL uh, over there. So it was him and I, and, um, and we became like good friends and, and uh, worked well together. And then I just said, Hey, uh, hey, check this out, you know, read it and tell me what you think. And then he thought it was great. And I said, okay, I have an idea. Let's, let's work on this together and let's get it out by Veterans Day. And that was in 2017. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we had some interest from some publishers, uh, you know, some book publisher that really thought it would be a cool idea and they wanted, they wanted to do something with it. But their timeline, like it took like three or four months for the guy to even reply. Oh, wow. Um, like their decision. And I'm like, I was kind of, you know, I wasn't hinged on that, but I was waiting for their reply before I really made any other solid moves. And, and he wrote back and he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm not, we're not sure about, you know, this. And I said, well, you know, can you tell me because I really want an answer because I want to try to get this out before veterans day. And it was like, you know, October, late October. And, um, and he's like, you mean Veterans Day 2018? And I said, no, I mean Veterans Day like in 20-something days. Oh, shit. And, and he was like, what? And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. You're not going to be able to do that. And I'm like, well, why not? And he said, well, because you, you'd have to do book design cover. You'd have to do this. You, they have to do formatting. They have to do printing. They have to do – it's just impossible. You're not going to be able to do that. And I yeah. said, okay, well, cool, thanks. And then um, Eric and I – uh, Eric Muller was the co-writer on it. And, and so we ended up doing it and we just, we just self-published it and we did it and we built our website. We did the, we did the design and, um, we did everything and, wow. uh, and we put it out on veterans day. That's uh, awesome. And, and I mean, we did it, you know, and we never, we never crushed it. We were in, we weren't a new New York times bestseller or anything like that, but that was never our goal. Um, I just, came to a point where I'm like, I, I was literally just seemed like the suicide thing was like something I was hearing about every day. And I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe this could help one person. Like if this can help one person, that's good enough for me. And that's, that's where we were, our mind was on it. And we put it out and we basically, this was, this was for the era. This was completely different because the perspective that Eric and I took was we were, as far as I know, there was only one other, I think, um, uh, he was a SEAL author at the time who Eric told me about him. He had written about uh, how it was a, it was a book written, which was basically an apology to his wife who they had gotten divorced. It was apology from over the deployments. Mm. Um, And it was written as an apology to his wife, like where he failed and like how their, you know, marriage had broken apart. So, but there was nothing else at the time where, like guys from soft were sharing that they were having difficulty during transition. Mm-hmm. Like everybody was winning. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, ah, oh, crushing it on, on, you know, Facebook crushing on here. Oh, I'm partying here. I'm at Vegas. I'm at shot show. Hey, you know, I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I got a, I got a TV series and I'm on a reality show. And it's like, ah, ah, you know, and the, but nobody was, nobody's failing. Like everybody's winning. And like, I just didn't feel like it was, 
truthful, even though for a couple of people, it was, it was very real. Like there, there's a few people who have transitioned straight into uh, financial success and like they were winning and like, but the message was to everybody was like, especially for guys in soft was you need to be winning. And, and that's coming from guys who basically are of the mentality that failure is not an option. Mm-hmm. Like failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. You know what I mean? It's, so it's like, it's like, okay, so what happens when you reach perceivable failure in your mind and it's not an option, but you're still failing. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so is the, what's the next level, you know, for, and especially for people who are, are drinking hard or, you know, like really depressed, like failure is not an option. Okay. Well then what is the option? Mm-hmm. Well, failure is not. So it's almost like the, uh, you know, the Japanese, uh, samurai, like, it's like, well, kill, kill myself. You know, I can't live yeah. with the shame. That's, that's so. a hard part. And I think that, uh, I think failures, it can be a very positive thing. I think that we learn a lot from failures. And so I've never really led that mentality. Like failure is not an option. I get the mindset of it because, you know, you want to be like, I'm not giving up. I'm going to pursue, I'm going to keep going. But if you do fail, I look at it like, if you gave it your all, there's nothing wrong with failure because it can boost you up and it can build you into, you know, becoming a better person or just moving on to the next thing that you can, you know, maybe be successful at. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool to, you know, hear more of that story of, you know, why you guys decided to write that book. Um, I know when I was in person with you, it really caught my interest because, you know, you're kind of right in the same ballpark as what we're doing with our book. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I know exactly what that timeline is like, because, you know, we have a certain timeline by September 11th and there's a lot of work that goes into trying to get it done by that date. But we look at it the same way to where, you know, yeah, we have about 70 veterans total in this book, but hell, if that changes one life, you know, hopefully more, I feel like, you know, that's like like mission accomplished for us. Well, it's an interesting perspective too, that you said early on of, of you getting recycled in pre-ranger and then, you know, ultimately making the next class successful through your failure is like, I never honestly thought about that, but I recycled Florida phase of ranger school. And I remember the second time I went through it was so much easier. And I think it was easier for everybody else I was with too, because I told them basically what was going to happen every day. And, uh, right. And it's absolutely that it's like, you know, if you can tell your story and transition and, you know, if you failed real hard, like it was like, damn, I really messed this up and it did not work out. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that to the next person is like, Hey, trust me, this didn't work. Maybe try X, Y, and Z and see if you'll have a little bit more success. You know, I, I feel like those are the stories that people need to hear, especially as they're coming out of the military. And those are, again, like you said, not the stories that people are hearing and not the content they're getting online. They're getting the content of like these super successful veterans, you know, on YouTube or on uh, whatever TV show or whatever movie. And it's like, well, I can't emulate that level of success. And so it's like you're already setting them up for a, a certain level of failure. Um, mm-hmm. So that's awesome to, to hear about the book. I'm, I'll probably definitely pick it up because I'm, I'm interested now to, to kind of see how many, uh, how many parallels I can pull from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you at least get one gold nugget from it, but really what it is, is it's just, it's set up as case studies of, um, embarrassing moments, you know, and, and if somebody read it today and I've actually had this reaction, which is really kind of funny. Um, but there's people that read it and then think that like, this is something that happened to me yesterday. And so in terms of, um, 
of what they call basking in reflective glory. Um, there's reflected glory. And then there's the opposite of that. And so people want to be around people who are successful. Yeah. Um, and it, it's like, it's, and then they're, then they don't want to be around people who they perceive are not successful. So it's a weird kind of psychology that humans and it's a survival thing and it's all these other things, but I've had people who, you know, I said, Oh yeah, this book. And then I've had people who maybe be from the industry or from something else. And then they read it and they they're reading it. And in their mind, they're thinking like, this just happened to me or this happened to me. And they're thinking, Oh, Oh, what? this, this happened to him. Like he's not, he's not as successful as I thought, you know, or, or and it's like, they, <laughs> they, they're moving on and it's just like, wow, man, you know, so people yeah. have different reactions to it, but, but Eric and I, like I said, these are, these are like low level, like how, you know, challenge, like I said, challenge, action, result. Um, and then, uh, you know, the outcome and how we moved on it and it's set up kind of like many op orders, um, and, uh, and how to deal with it. And so, um, we were the first that I know of that made it cool to share scars, like, like made it cool to, to share the failures, like, mm -hmm. you know, when we put it out there. So, um, yeah, I noticed, I, that I noticed yeah. the narrative, like everything kind of changed around the same time. So I don't know how much we influenced that, but I know that it wasn't there previous for sure. Well, I think, you know, we've got, you know, I, I know we've got a lot of success stories, you know, in our book that we're working on, you know, from veterans that, you know, have faced ugly challenges, you know, on deployments and then have come back and, you know, had successful stories. And then we have on the contrary, we have people that, you know, maybe are still going through their own battles. Um, so it's interesting to hear that. And I think it's just more valuable to hear about people's failures. And um, Joel, I want to wrap up on this, but so what's, what are you doing next? Like, what is, where's your life taking you now? You know, what can we be on the lookout for with you? Um, look, I have every possible iron in the fire that I can have. Like I'm, I'm constantly, uh, you know, reviewing opportunity. I'll never turn away an opportunity. I always look at something. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a lot of energy. I try to balance that. Uh, you know, these days I have a family, um, so uh, I'm a working professional. But my thing is this: is that in especially these days with COVID, right? It was already bad enough. It was already challenging enough. My bread and butter was travel risk industry. That was, it has been what's paid my bills. Which is funny because it goes back to regiment. That was my foundation, um, and I was able to turn that into something where that pays my bills. Mm -hmm. Um, that slowed down tremendously after COVID. There's many people that all experienced that. So my thing has always been just cert out, like qual out on everything. So yeah. like anything that I can be licensed or certified in whatever it is, like I'm pursuing it. So, you know, the college degree, uh, I'm, I now have my real estate license. Um, I have my mortgage, uh, I'm set up to take a test. I finished all my coursework for mortgage uh, loan origination, which I did when I first got out. So I'm familiar with it. Um, cybersecurity stuff, it, it, cybersecurity certs, you know, all these different things. And I wouldn't even mind going to figure out and get certed for like, you know, low voltage electrician, uh, some mechanic stuff, like anything basically to make myself better um, in that regard. So like qualification, you know, there's a saying, um, it's actually a quote from like a Renaissance icon. And, um, and the quote was, uh, 
you know, the most well-rounded man is the, the warrior, the philosopher and the artist. And I, I, I mess it up a little bit, but it basically in a nutshell, if you're one dimensional, it's just not good enough. I don't care if you're the best special operator. Um, you know, when you come out, there's a learning curve. And so, um, you, you gotta just attack everything the same way. And, and so, um, I just want to make sure that if anything, uh, you know, comes my way, basically that I'm set up, uh, to, to have a good outcome with it. So yeah. that's what I'm doing now. I have the, I have the film projects, like I mentioned. Um, I mean, hopefully like a, pro- a project that I've worked on for 11 years, believe it or not, Jeez. it's just so crazy. Um, it's been like, you know, roller coaster ride up and down, but the last phase of it is just getting this lead actor for our, our movie. It's an amazing, uh, true story about this dog and this cowboy. Like that's, we got our director, we got finance and we got, uh, we've been, we've been for a year now, um, going out with offers to actors and like, you know, A-list actors. And we've had some people that were interested and it looked like it, maybe they might be the one, but it hasn't matched up yet so mm-hmm. getting that would be huge for me in the movie world because once you have one you know it opens the doors for everything else yeah the ridge the ridge talker guard this other project i'm about to pick up um these are all things that i'm working on and uh you know when you become stagnant and you're not pursuing you're not driving yourself you know including working out eating healthy nutrition we didn't talk about any of that by the way i don't drink i used to party a lot uh, Hollywood and also, you know, in regiment, whenever we weren't working, I'd go down into downtown Savannah and it was just always a good time. Yeah. Um, I got to a point where all I want to do is just be razor sharp. So, uh, it's all about nutrition and just health for me now working out, um, you know, all that, all that stuff. That's me today, you know, family, man. Um, I try to help out whoever I can fellow veterans or whatever. Um, sometimes I can't other times I can. I try to share my network, whatever it is, but, um, it's, you know, as long as I'm here and alive and functioning, then I just want to be the best person that I can be. Yeah. hundred percent. Awesome. And I think that, you know, like you said, we didn't touch on those things, but they're such important avenues. You know, I, I know, you know, I won't get too deep into it, but I can kind of relate, you know, from you living in Hollywood that you get kind of wrapped up in going out every night, you know, even like you said in Savannah, Georgia. So it's kind of like, you need to kind of surround yourself around those positive individuals and, you know, drinking doesn't really get you anywhere. You need to be in the gym. You need to be eating healthy, getting plenty of sleep because that's like the first, you know, step into your transition, I can imagine. Um, but it's just great to hear like the things that you're working on. I, I would love to see some of these films come to fruition, especially for how much work you've put into them. I think that they're like, <laughs> man, me too, bro. <laughs> fuck. Like I hear about them and I'm like, that's like the next Black Hawk down, you know, and I think of the Ridge and, you know, or Tall Mountain. I just think that that could be such a cool film opportunity. So uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed and hopefully, you know, if that avenue ever crosses me, we can help out in any way that we can. I don't know what that looks like, but fuck, we're here to support any way we can. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so I, once again, I appreciate you guys even having the interest to, to talk to me because I've gotten to the point where I just feel like my story is pretty boring and I'm always fascinated to just learn about other people and how they've, you know, the victories they've had in their lives. No, not at all. I think everyone's story is important. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely know going back to, like I said before, you know, meeting up with you in person, 
I thought it was interesting enough. And so I knew immediately I wanted to have you on the show and, and, and talk more in length about it. But, um, I know Dan, I really appreciate your time and, and thanks for being a part of this and, and hopping on this episode with us tonight. Absolutely. No, I, again, thank you guys. All right. We'll talk to you soon, brother. Yep. All right. <laughs>